Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Let us listen now for God's word to us. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in that place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed, distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. So although we have uh, left the, the Gospel of Mark, which we've been kind of going through, we left it for now, we see again a common theme that we saw popping up a lot in the past few weeks. Jesus can't seem to go anywhere without attracting a crowd. News about him had spread, about his amazing deeds of power, and people were apparently flocking to see him and perhaps to be healed by him. Now, the interesting thing about miracle stories like this or, or the many healings that we see Jesus perform throughout the Gospels is that, to us, they read as fundamentally supernatural, right? They, they break all the laws that we know govern the world that we live in. But this idea of the supernatural was not necessarily a part of the ancient mindset, at least not in the same way. In other words, it's a thoroughly modern concept, now, to be sure, experiences like this were not typical. They were unusual, uh, you know, not everyday or commonplace, but they were also you know, not entirely unheard of. Both in the Greco-Roman world and in Jewish thought, the boundaries between heaven and earth were understood to be quite porous. 
and claims to divinity were not terribly uncommon. And, and this makes some sense, right? The logic goes that if, if God, or the gods in Greek thought, if God was intimately involved in the creation of the world, and indeed the entire universe, the cosmos, it stands to reason that God could cause all sorts of things to happen that might seem fantastical to us. So perhaps we have something important to learn from our ancient predecessors. I point this out because I think we often think of the miracles, the miracle stories of Jesus as his way of kind of proving to people, including us, like proving that he was divine, right? And we often focus on the power of God exercised in these deeds of power and marvel at Jesus's divine abilities because, you know, there's, there's no greater proof for us that Jesus was God than the fact that he did these miracles, especially, you know, the grand finale where he rose from the dead. Yet John, the author of the gospel, doesn't seem to conceive of the miracles in quite the same way that we do. He prefers instead to call them signs. Now, signs, as you probably know, serve a very particular purpose. Signs point us towards something, right? They, they, they point beyond themselves to something else, something that is beyond, something often greater, something that is more. So we're mistaken if we think the sign itself is the thing, forgetting that you know, its job is to point us to something else. So in other words, in the case of Jesus' miracles, the signs that he performs, we sell them short if we get hung up on the miracle itself and not on the thing to which the sign points. These signs point us not only to a deeper truth about who Jesus is, but they reveal to us the very character of the God who sent him into the world because of God's great love for the world. News began to spread about him because of these signs, because people heard that something divine was happening and they wanted to be a part of it. So Jesus ascends a mountain as crowds follow him. He looks down on the crowd and he sees this incredible need that these people have. And immediately his instinct is to feed them, to offer them bread. So he asks his disciples, you know, where, where can we buy bread to feed these people? And they, of course, have all sorts of excuses, but no real constructive answers. Philip tells Jesus about, you know, how expensive it would be to buy the bread for this many people. Six months' wages wouldn't even be enough to give everyone even a little bit of bread. And besides, Jesus, we all quit our jobs to follow you, remember? So we're not exactly high on the hog right now. And then Andrew's brother Peter responds that, you know, the only one that we can see that has any food is this kid with only five measly loaves and two fish. Not nearly enough for thousands of people. Jesus sees a need, <clears throat> and his desire is to fill it. The disciples see the same need, and their only response is to point out all the reasons that they can't fill it. And the thing is, these are all good, practical reasons. It would be very expensive to buy bread for that many people. Five loaves and two fish don't seem like enough to feed thousands. When they looked around, all they saw was scarcity. But Jesus saw abundance. They were concerned that they didn't have enough bread, forgetting that the bread of life stood before them. And this is often how we operate 
from a, a scarcity mentality, forgetting that we worship the God of abundance, the bread of life. If our first instinct when we see someone in need is to make excuses for why we can't or shouldn't help them, then we ought to seriously reevaluate what it means for us to be a follower of Christ. And I'm guilty of this all the time. I mean, after all, like the disciples on that, the disciples on that day, we are surrounded by all sorts of need. We can't escape it. If we tried to help each and every person in need, we would be overwhelmed by it. So our tendency when we read stories like this, I think, and kind of our takeaway is to often spiritualize it, right? When we think of Jesus as the bread of life, we think of him as providing nourishment for our souls, feeding us spiritually. And that's true. He certainly does do that as well. But let it not be lost on us that food, real food, was rather scarce during this time in which Jesus fed these thousands of people. We're talking about a people living under foreign occupation, most of whom are simple, impoverished peasants. First century Palestine under Roman rule was an enormous food desert. Food was scarce. So Jesus wasn't simply feeding people spiritually. He was providing sustenance for their bodies. He gave food generously while the empire rationed it scarcely. It should be a reminder for us that when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he taught them to pray for daily bread. In a context like ours, when, where most of us have access to more than our fill of daily bread, can be, we can easily miss what's going on in the background of that prayer. One day, uh, a few years ago, while we were still living in Atlanta, I think we only had Maya at that point, and she was pretty young. <clears throat> We'd been down in Florida visiting some family in St. Augustine, and the drive home was just epically terrible. Just one of those awful road trips, right? It took forever. We, we came across multiple accidents along the way, just at a standstill for hours. Uh, and then, of course, coming into Atlanta, there was terrible traffic. Surprise, surprise. So what was normally a six-hour trip from St. Augustine to Atlanta turned into a 10-hour trip. And it was absolutely miserable. So we were, of course, uh, by the end of this trip, we were totally exhausted. And I was, as the driver, extremely frustrated. Frustrated is putting it very nicely. I was, I was uh, pretty ugly that day. <laughs> All I wanted to do, of course, was to get home, get out of the car, and just lay down. You know, just relax, finally. As we pulled off the interstate uh, at our exit, waiting for the light to turn green, a woman approached our car, clearly, you know, planning to ask for money. I didn't roll down my window. I didn't even make eye contact with her. I gave her, you know, the, the sorry, you know, can't help you wave and expected that she would uh, move on to the next car. But she just stood there looking at me just in absolute disbelief. So finally, I rolled down my window and I said to her, look, I'm sorry, we don't have any money, you know, which was true. We didn't have any money in our pockets and uh, we certainly didn't have much in our bank accounts. Life as a seminary student isn't exactly profitable. profitable. Then she said to me, you know, do you think I want to be out here doing this? Do you think this is what I want to be doing right now? And then proceeded to tell me about her kids who were back in this hotel room that she had purchased for the night. And because she had to pay for that room because they had nowhere else to go, she didn't have money to buy food. So eventually, after talking with her for a little bit, we grabbed some change out of the ashtray and, and gave it to her and drove off. 
And immediately as we drove away, I heard the words of Jesus from Matthew 25 just ringing in my head. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. Just as you did it, did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. For me, the point is not so much about what we could have done for that woman, but didn't, because truthfully, there's not much we could have done to change her situation. We could not have dramatically altered the course of her life that night. No matter what we gave her, at best, it would have gotten her through the night and she'd still be in the same situation tomorrow. But the real shame that I felt and still feel now, as I tell the story again, is that I refused in that moment to even acknowledge her as a person. Rather than seeing her as a person, all I saw was this need outside my window. This, was what, this is what the scarcity mentality does to us. It warps the way that we see people to the point that we barely recognize them as people anymore. But this is not how Jesus operates. And he calls us to a different way of living and moving in the world. Instead, Jesus trusts in God's abundance, and it results in more than enough for everyone. Twelve baskets full of leftover crumbs. One basket for each disciple who previously had more excuses than trust. And one of the fascinating things about this, uh, this miracle, I think, is that we never actually see the moment of multiplication. Right? John never says, and then Jesus turned five loaves into 15,000 and two fish into 10,000 or whatever. Right? We never actually hear about the moment of the miracle. We don't see or hear about the overfilled baskets until after everyone has had their fill. This is why I think it's important for us not to get hung up on the sign itself, but rather what it points us to. So perhaps the more radical transformation that we see here is not the multiplication of bread and fish, but the transformation of the disciples who go from these practically-minded cynics who think there's just no way we can feed all these people to those who are picking up basket after basket of leftovers. We talk about a punch to the gut, right? The mentality of scarcity cripples us with fear and causes us to live uh, with concern only for ourselves. But Jesus, the bread of life, reminds us that we are not called to live in fear, but we are called to live in radical trust, and that our lives are not our own. You may remember early in Genesis the story of Cain and Abel, where the two have a bit of a falling out, and Cain ultimately kills Abel. And Cain's, uh, Abel's blood calls out to God from the ground, and God comes down to Cain and says to him, where is your brother Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? The implicit answer to that question is yes. You are your brother's keeper. We are the keepers of our sisters and brothers. And so we are called to that radical trust that Christ has given us. Trust that even in the midst of the most difficult storms, even when we are surrounded by what, what appears to be insurmountable need, the bread of life comes out to us, meets us on the sea in the midst of that storm, and says, it is I. Do not be afraid. How then shall we live? Will we live from a place of scarcity and fear? 
or will we trust in the God of abundance, the bread of life? Amen.